Oh, good job, you know. Look at that. Set down on your own. Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here um, to be a part of our worship time together and to, to be a part of what it means to center ourselves around the Word and who the Lord is as us as a community and as a people. And for the next five weeks, we are going to be in a new series, um, and it's going to explore a lot of topics. And as someone recently had uh, reached out to me and was like, hey, what, what's the next series going to be on? And so I responded with grief, trauma, shame, heartache, shattered dreams. And they said, oh, so just some lighthearted stuff, right? So all my Enneagram 4s in the room, like, you guys are about to, you know, the next five weeks, you're going to be like, yes, feelings, depth, all of it, uh, you know. Some of those uh, that are afraid of emotions and feelings, you're going to say, yeah, I'm out. Like, uh, I think I'm busy the next few weeks or whatever it might be. So we want to engage this, though, and think about this for a few different reasons. A lot of us are familiar with these topics, if you're honest with yourself. If you have some sort of uh, inkling of self-introspection or whatever it might be, your life no matter your age, no matter your socioeconomic status, whatever it might be, grief and trauma, uh, difficulty in relationships, uh, frustration in the way your life has gone, everyone is acquainted with these ideas. No, it's my fault, obviously, but why? Here we go, let's fix it. Because that's going to be real annoying if it does that the whole time. Aha! Yeah, there it goes. Loose right there. Okay. Scene one. Act. Okay, go. Uh, so, so we're familiar with these ideas. Things happen. Things cause us to be aware of uh, what... Uh, that life doesn't like, go the way we think that it should. And so it's something that's innate in all of us in our humanity. To be human is to experience some of these things. Uh, to be human is to know the, 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 the depths of grief, to know the depths of suffering, to know the depths of pain. And then, also, simultaneously, we find ourselves in a cultural moment where some of this is become, uh, like, in vogue, if you will. We now talk about trauma and shame and all of these things, and whether it's diagnosed or undiagnosed, we just caveat it however we want. But like there's, it's come into like the social vernacular in a lot of ways and how we process these things. And so we figured if this is true of humanity and it's true of the kind of the social moment we find ourselves in, that we think that it would be helpful or worthwhile to kind of take some time and to talk about these things. And because we all know this experience, the unfortunate part about it is, is that many of us, as we have begun to encounter our own stories and name many of these things, if you grew up in the church, to just be completely honest, the church has kind of lagged behind in, in addressing things. Many of us grew up in homes or, or in uh, settings that shaped us and formed us very positively and and we know that oftentimes we weren't allowed to necessarily talk about these things and especially if you were a believer and there, there was this sense or this idea that you're not supposed to experience those things so if you do you need to just kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and and you know move on with your life like well Jesus has saved you somebody else has got it worse than you 
And so we want to talk about the next five weeks, about what it means to process these things and to deal with these things as believers, though. Because as the church has vacated some of this, as the church is lagged behind, where most of us or a lot of us are learning from these things and, and approaching and dealing and naming these things is coming from a space outside of the church. And what we want to say is that we think that there's a way as believers, followers of Jesus, that you can name and be honest and yet approach and find healing uh, beyond just what is maybe offered in psychotherapy, that we are pro-counseling. Um, it, is, it is therapy and Jesus a lot of times for most of us, and I, I'm a firm believer in that. And You can ask me about my story. I, I have experience with it all. And and would encourage you to do the same. But it is also Jesus, and we do look at it differently, and we process it differently. And so that's what we're going to spend the next five weeks doing, is thinking through what it means to name these things and yet not let them name us as we follow Jesus. And it's really tempting, I think, in these moments, and as we approach our own stories, the stories of culture, the stories of humanity, it's tempting for us to not begin in the beginning. For many of us, when we tell our own stories, we start with those big moments, especially if your life or your story is defined by trauma, is defined by grief. If, if you have these traumatic experiences, it's tempting to start your kind of understanding and your lens by which you understand all that's happening to you with those moments. It's tempting to start there. And we do the same thing theologically and kind of uh, however we want to say, like we understand what it means to be human. Oftentimes it's tempting to begin our story in Genesis 3 as the church. We understand, oh, well, yes, yeah, sin, the fall, all of these things. And I think that when we do that, and whether it's your story or the story of humanity, whether it's the story of the Bible, theology, if you begin there, you miss something about the goodness of humanity, about the goodness of, of what it's supposed to be. Just ignore it, okay? We miss something about this thing deep in us that life is supposed to be good. That life is supposed to be something that has joy in it. And when your life around you oftentimes is nothing but heartache and disappointment, and for some of us, our stories, that is real. Or if your most recent experience is grief and frustration or just living in America or in the world for that matter the last two years, it's easy to think and to give yourself to the space of going, well, there's just, there's, like, why? What, what's the point? Like, nothing, like, humanity's just terrible. Like, we all end up fighting all the time. Like, it, history repeats itself. And we oftentimes miss what it means to go back and to understand that there is something pure and right in being human. And so for our series, what we want to do is we want to begin with and kind of go back to this idea of desire. We want to begin to think about what it means that if we go back to Genesis 1, to think about that we were created to experience and to enjoy a creation that was abundant, that was good, that that is what we are released into, that we are not released into a culture of scarcity, a culture of work, a culture of struggle, a culture of striving, 
but humanity was meant to be released into a place of goodness, of beauty. The garden was abundant. This theological idea has been something that has captivated me for the last several years. This idea that in the garden what you see is that there was more than enough. There was more than they could have wanted or imagined. And that is who God is. And he created these people. He created this humanity to share and to participate in that abundance. To share in the love and the communion of the Godhead. And so core to who we are as humanity is that we were created out of that. That we were created to share and to participate in who the Godhead is. I talk about this with my boys. The other day we just had this great discussion. Uh, Jameson, my five-year-old, is getting old enough uh, to, to begin to understand some things that he doesn't quite understand, but he understands enough. And so the other day I was saying something to him about being in charge. And he said, well, you're not in charge. God's in charge. I said, well, touche, my friend, touche. <laughs> And then we go through the process of, uh, you know, well, God, I'm your father. God placed me over, you know, I, I'm in charge of this house. This is my house. That's through God. And hopefully I point you to him, all this stuff. And in that, we started having this conversation with my three-year-old where he said, well, well, like, well, I don't need you. And I said, well, you, you do kind of need me. And he's like, no, I don't. And I was like, well, who's going to fix your food? And he said, I'll fix it. And I said, can you get it from the top shelf? And he said, no, I guess I do need you. <laughs> And he said, well, then you need me, right? And I said, not exactly. And I said, because I could eat without you. I could sustain my life without you. I don't need you in that kind of way. Anna and I didn't need our boys, okay? We didn't have, like, we didn't, we, we, our life wasn't somehow, like, not able to exist without them. We would have been able to stay alive. We would have slept more. We would have been healthier, probably, like, <laughs> We would have been able to pursue other hobbies and be better at our jobs, honestly. Right? We didn't need them. Yet there was this thing that began to happen within us, within our relationship, that there was a love that the two of us shared for one another. That there was this desire in which we wanted to invite something or someone else into it. If you talk to Grant Mullins, he'll laugh about newly married couples because there's, he calls it the dog phase. Where, like, they've been married long enough that they have to get a dog because, like, it's their, like, prelude to having children. He's like, oh, it's coming. Like, they got the dog, so we're, like, what, you know, a year, two years, they're going to have a kid. Because when you share in this and it's good and it's right, there is this desire to invite someone or something else into that relationship and that communion that you have with one another. There is a desire to like give this love and this relationship to someone. This is true outside of parenting and marriage as well. You're, if you're single or you're not yet like in a family setting, think about things that you love. When you truly love something, even if it's weird, there comes a point where you're so passionate about it that like you need other people to participate it with you. You don't need them in that sense that like you can't do it, but like you're compelled to it. You have to invite them into it. You will begin talking about things that embarrass you or you thought would embarrass you, right? See Mia hide her eyes. Like K-pop, right? Like, you know, she knew I was coming for her. That's why she was trying not to make eye contact with me. But you get to a point you don't care because you, you're so passionate about it. This is what humanity was created for. 
When we say things like we were created out of love in the image of God, when when the Godhead says in Genesis that in our image we will create them, what Scripture is telling us is that we as humanity were created out of this love and this passion and this communion that we are meant to participate in and to share in. It was out of love in which we were created, and therefore it is for that love and that communion and that relationship that we are created. And we participate in it. And deep, deep within us, like foundationally into humanity, then is this need and this desire to be in relationship with one another. To be in connectedness, to, to know and to be known is like a core human value. There's a great psychologist, Christian guy, by the name of Kurt Thompson. And he says that every human being is born looking for someone looking for them. He's borrowing from this idea from a guy named Dan Siegel. Because these four S's, if you're an educator, you might be familiar with Dan Siegel, the whole brain child, or uh, mindset, I think is another one that he has written saying this idea that deep within all of us is this need to be seen. So Siegel will say that before or after your basic needs of like biology are met, this is borrowing also from René Girard, a French Catholic philosopher of the uh, 19th century, that once you are like, uh, if you're not hungry and you're not at danger, like safe in a different, like, like there's safe and then there's like safe that we'll get to in a second. If you're not hungry, if you're not at risk of losing your life, if you're clothed, if you're warm, if you're rested, then immediately, like the next thing that you will begin to look for is connection and acceptance. Like foundational in a newborn, there's this thing that happens that they are looking for someone looking for them that is attuned to them, that, that sees them and they want to be seen. They want to be known, even as small little children, as babies. And we're learning more and more about the science of it all and understanding that, like, how that happens, if it happens well or doesn't happen well, like, so much of, like, the mapping and the wiring and the neurons of your brain, and there are people in this room that could explain that much better than I could. But there's this thing in us, and where we're meant to share in community, that we have these desires that are good, that are basic, to be connected. And so Siegel will say that once those basics are met, that you have a desire to be seen. Before being soothed, okay, before a baby, like as a baby is crying or is upset, or before the sense of feeling safe beyond like the immediate risk of danger, but safe to be, safe to exist, safe to kind of let go, Before that, they want to be seen. They are looking for someone looking for them. And this is a deep desire within all of humanity. It's like a fundamental desire of being human. What happens when these desires are met in a human being? When they are seen and then they're soothed, these things happen and then they are safe, 
then they feel secure to go out into the world and to risk, to pursue dreams, to pursue hopes, to fail, to be able to, to apply themselves in a kind of way, to, to chase after things. The desires of their heart, if you will. That there's this ability where a human being, when they know those things are met, when they know someone knows them, when they know that they have what they need, they go and they apply themselves to the world in a different kind of way. They'll go out there and they'll put themselves into the world in a way that know, they know that they could fail, that things could be hard, things could be difficult. And so meeting that initial core desire of humanity is foundational to us being able to participate in the work of the kingdom, the work of what God would have us call, like be called to. Because this desire to be in community, to be known, is the foundational thing. I'm teaching at Samford this semester, and there's these great moments where what you're teaching overlaps perfectly with what we're doing here at the church, and it like, feels like it's feeding off of one another, and that's happened this week. In my class, we're talking about uh, Augustine. Many of you are familiar with this man and his foundational kind of contribution to philosophy, not just theology and religion. Like in the 20th century, uh, they were studying philosophy of Augustine as like a secularism, like secular philosophers are looking at this because he shifts from saying that it is not knowledge that will move us, but it is our desires, that it is our passions, that it is our loves, because he gets this deep thing within us. Now, as a Christian, he's going to take that one step further, and he is going to say, and so much of the problem of the world is that our desires are disordered that we place them in the wrong places. Or maybe that the desire is good, but how we try to fill it is in the wrong ways. Looking for love in all the wrong places, a familiar way of talking about this, that we're all, you know, that we're, we can share with it. And so this is Augustine's idea, that there is this thing of disordered desire and that we often give ourselves in an attempt to find this connection, to find this acceptance, in an attempt to be seen, what we do is we pursue things that aren't necessarily all that healthy for us. We begin to pursue things that aren't safe or aren't good. But oftentimes it is not out of an attempt to do something like completely hedonistic or whatever way we might want to talk about it, it is an attempt to fill this desire to be known. This happens at a very young age. It is not pure selfishness and pure, like, just evil of a child that they begin to show these, like, elements of, uh, you know, wanting things. You don't have to teach a child the word mine. They will naturally figure out how to say that is mine want that, give it to me. But in this understanding of desire and in this understanding of who we are as human to be seen and connected and to be relational, as these needs are met and as you begin to long to be seen, connected, in a part of something, your desires of your heart will then become this communal thing. You see what someone else has and you want it, not because they have it, 
You naturally want it because you want to be a part of what they are a part of. You naturally want to step into this thing and go like, I I see what you're doing and I want that because I want to be seen and known in the way that you see and know that thing. I want to be accepted. And so we begin to order our life around these things that will allow us to gain that acceptance. We orient our lives and we pursue things in such a way that what we're doing is we're pursuing acceptance. We're pursuing the desire to be seen. But now there's a problem, isn't there? It doesn't just go wrong with the disordered desires as we named. But it begins to go wrong because there are these moments where as we're pursuing those things, something interrupts. It is a natural and good desire to pursue relationship, to pursue connection. But whatever it might be, there's this thing that steps in. And when we're pursuing those things and it doesn't happen, we begin to feel feeling that is all too familiar to all of us. We feel shame. Something about, I'm not good enough. There's something fundamentally about me that doesn't allow me to be accepted or to be seen or to be known. Because when I was doing the thing that was natural to me, which was to try to connect, to reach out and to partake in something, something happened. There was a way in which that was cut off and we begin to experience shame in it. 15 to 18 months is when shame begins to set into a human being. It can be as subtle as an attempt and a desire when a child is building blocks, stacking blocks up. And if you're a parent, you know it can be very noisy and frustrating. I told you to put those blocks away. Just put them away. And so you yell at a child, not meaning to disrupt, to disintegrate, to disorient this child's desire to be seen. But in that child, there was this thing that was happening where what they were doing was they were building because they wanted to create something. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be connected. They wanted you to see them. And so they were trying to put beauty into the world in their own little way, which is stacking three blocks on top of each other. That's their idea of putting beauty into the world. Making something with their hands. And in that subtle moment, what happens to a little 15-month-old baby that's stacking blocks and you yell at them and you, you cut them off as you create in them this idea of, well, apparently what I was making this is real bad now. We're just going to keep rolling with it. What I was making isn't enough, so I'm not enough. And we begin to carry this with us. And when we carry it with us, what we do is we begin to then think that the world must be finite. The world must be limited. And so now that desire to be connected and to be seen, to create, to be a part of something, is now something that we begin to do that envy creeps in jealousy creeps in and now i need the thing that you have now i need that thing that you're pursuing now my desires are so that i can have that because if i don't get that i will not be able to exist and if they get it they will take it from me and so shame turns our natural good desires into envy and jealousy and it co-ops it and it corrupts it And so then our desires are not to create and to connect and to commune with one another, but our desires come to devour and to consume. 
We move from producing something, creating something, space, beauty, connection, to consuming it and taking it for us because we must have it because I'm not enough and I need more of something to make me good enough. To make me be able to be connected, seen, valued. And so we struggle and we wrestle and shame destroys us. And so this is an underworking for how we will process things like grief and trauma. In the role, this need and desire for connection and for relationship functions within us as human beings. This is, you're going to have some questions after today, probably. And we're going to get to defining some of these terms and how we understand them and how they kind of function differently. But underneath of all of it, what we wanted to set up and understand is that each of us have these deep, natural desires And each of us have experienced small moments that force us to feel like those desires are wrong. That those desires are somehow meaning that I am wrong. That I am not enough. And shame begins to be this thing that we carry with us and that defines us and that shapes us and forms us in such a way that what it begins to do is in our desire to connect and our desire to be in communion with one another, and our desire to be in relationship with one another, what we do is we create this moment in this space where we actually withdraw and isolate instead of connecting. And this has all sorts of repercussions and problems for us because this desire, this thing that was in us, that we longed for, is placed within us because of God. Because desire begins and ends with God. When God created us in Genesis 1, He was a God that desired us to be a desiring people that would desire Him who desires us. This passion, this excitement to move into the world, to connect to it, to be in relationship, to to see beauty, to see hope, to see joy is this thing in us that is meant to be shared. And it's from God, and yet there's all these subtle ways in which we miss it, which we disconnect from it. And so then we're left with a question And and we're left with this gnawing feeling that so many of us are familiar with, which is then we are set up with, we understand that it is God that we should desire. And yet we desire so many other things. We understand that there's a disconnect. And this is why Augustine is so genius. I used the example of uh, technology in my class this week when talking about it. I've also uh, been fond to use the example of Taco Bell, if you're a Taco Bell fan. You know that you should go to bed and not be on your phone or be on technology, and yet you stay on it. You know the repercussions of eating too much Taco Bell, and yet in those moments of disintegration and desperation, you choose to go after it anyways. It is not our knowledge, but it is our desire for something, our appetite for something, our need for something that compels us. 
So then for too many of us, what we have done is we have ignored our desires or lied to ourselves about our desires or not been honest about our desires. And 28 minutes later, I will now come back to our passage. <laughs> I was supposed to do it earlier and I missed it. I got too far down in, so now we're coming back. This is what I love about this, is that Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, what do you want? And for the disciples, this is a group of people, they're forming, these are two guys that are going to end up following him. They had a deep desire to see the Messiah come. They had a deep desire to be brought out of the place they were in in Roman society. They had a deep desire to no longer be relegated to the margins and to live into what Yahweh had intended the people of God to be. And this is what I think we see in this passage with Jesus and what is true of our lives today. is though those desires may be misdirected or misguided at times, I think Jesus sees them and he knows them and he looks at you and he says, what do you want? And in that moment, I think he knows that what you want is really him because it's what you're created to want. And he understands that you have misplaced that and misdirected that at times. And he looks at those disciples and he says, what do you want? And he is good to give it to them. They want to know where he's staying. Like, what a random, like, so many things that you would expect for them to ask. Are you the Messiah? Can you heal me? Where did your teaching powers come from? All these different things. Like, there's so many things they could have asked. And they ask this random thing of, where are you staying? I have to think that in some sense they may be panicked. Like, I, ooh, yeah, sure, let's ask that. Maybe not. I don't know. But what we see is that Jesus is good to give them that. And in that, they then receive something more than they could have wanted or imagined when they asked that question. You see Andrew run back to his brother and say to him, we have found the Messiah. We have seen him. And he's as good as we imagined him to be. And then the whole story of the Gospels is going to be three years of Jesus taking the desires and the wants and the longings of these disciples and helping them reorient and re-understand them. But he does not ever run from what they want. He does not ever run from their desires because he knows that those desires are directing them towards something. They're directing them towards him. Ask and you will find. Seek and you will find. Ask and you will know. Knock and the door will be opened. Any who would seek truth will find it, is what I think Jesus knows. Because here's the greatest thing that can happen to someone that you're maybe walking alongside or someone you know, that you have questions about their pursuit of Jesus if you're on this other end. Or maybe if you're in this room and you're like, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. Here's what I say. I hope you get everything you want. I hope your life works out exactly like it's supposed to. I hope the dreams are fulfilled. I hope that like all along the path, everything that you think you want and that you're longing for, I hope it all happens for you. Because once it all does, that's the best place for you to understand who you actually need and what you actually want. Because the reality of it is, when your dreams come true, 
when they are made outside of the longing and desire for God and for communion where it's supposed to be, the reality of it is, is that we will be nothing but disappointed and frustrated. So the faster that can happen for you, the faster all those dreams can come true, the faster you can find yourself longing for what you need to long for. And returning back to who God is. And I think Jesus gets this. I think he longs for us to long for him, right? He's pursuing us. He's coming for us in all of these ways. And the reason this happens is because he placed it in us. And he wants you to want good and right things. He wants you to have passion and excitement. There are all these moments and ways in where we don't. We give up. And so when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, what do you want? I think it's a phenomenal question for us to ask ourselves. What is it that we want? And I think there's two things that happen when you really stop and you become honest about that question and you begin to ask it in a real way. Because here's the reality. The person you will deceive the most throughout your life again and again, the person you will lie to the most is yourself. And when you slow down and you're actually honest and you answer that question and you let go of the things that you're supposed to say, when you let go of the things that you think the right answer to the question is, and you're truly honest with what you want, two things happen. There is grace in that moment and there is conviction. For many of us, there is grace in that moment because we hear that it is okay to want things. It allows us to reawaken something in us that goes, it's okay to desire these things. Because our life has been filled with one disappointment after another. Our life has been filled with one moment after another when every time we've longed or desired or dreamed for something, it didn't come to fruition. And so we are left with this thing where we go, well, I'm just going to like not. I'm just going to not exist. I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to walk away from what I want and I'll just pretend to do the things that I think I'm supposed to do. We live a life that is, I think, closed off to much of the experience that God would long and desire for us to have. The other thing that happens in that moment when you answer that question honestly is that you are convicted because if you are truly honest about what you want, you will recognize that much of your life that you think you have wanted and that you think you've been pursuing isn't really what you're actually after. This is the reason there's a disconnect in a lot of our lives. Because we say we want one thing, but then everything we do lines up with something else. And so oftentimes what our actual desire is is to do something other than what we think we want. And the Lord is good to reveal to us in that moment the thing that we're actually pursuing so that we can realign. Or maybe, as I said, get what we think we want and then be disappointed disappointed by it. I think Jesus is asking us that question again and again. What is it that you want? What do you desire? And for so many of us, it's easier to give the cultural answers. It's easier for us to like kind of like set our expectations low. It's easier for us to kind of like just say what we think we're supposed to say because at least that way we won't be disappointed by it. It's easier to want the 2.2 kids, the white picket fence, the dog, and the house in the suburbs, and the six-figure salary, and whatever else is that like, the statistics say we're supposed to pursue. 
Because we can control that. We can define that. We can say that that is good or that is not good. And now we're returning back to the original sin. In that moment, there was this desire to do something, to be connected, to trust, to feel safe, secure. And what we do is we begin to define for ourselves something else. What seems innocuous or harmless oftentimes is us trying to control and to play it safe and to do what we want to do because it's easier if I can define it. It's easier if I can control it. Or we do the opposite. We say we want something, but everything else about our lives pursues something to the opposite. And we lie and we trick ourselves over and over again. And so the question I have for us this morning is what do we want? What is the desire of our hearts? What can we honestly reflect and open up before the Lord and say, this is what I long for? And to quit lying to ourselves, to quit lying to the people around us, to not give the answers we think we need to give, but to give the honest, real, unfiltered answers. And I think that the Lord will look at us and be so gracious and kind in that moment that you will be floored. And he will be good to give you more than you can want or imagine. But yet for so many of us, right? And this is where we're going to go to grief and trauma. To give a small preview that we don't even dream or open up because we're too afraid of all of the pain that we've experienced. And that story of shame, and that story of I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, I missed it, it's my fault, that we carry with us again and again, it speaks louder than the story that Jesus would long to speak over you. A story of grace, a story of goodness, a story of that you are enough. And we hide from what is coming. We pull ourselves back, we take ourselves out of the moments where beauty wants to be made manifest, where we can cultivate something, an energy, a life. Because we believe something else. A story of untruth that is not who you are, but we let all of those things that we've experienced through life tell us otherwise. And this is what I'm convinced of, is that Jesus is coming for us. And he longs to look at you and to say to you, you are enough. You are smart enough. You are pretty enough. You are capable enough. You're old enough. You're wise enough to the parents in the room, that you are a good parent, that you are the exact person that should be parenting your children, that you are enough to the spouses in the room, that you are the husband or the wife that you are supposed to be, that you are enough to the room, that you are the, the son or the daughter that you are supposed to be, to the friends in the room, that you are the friend that you are supposed to be, that you are the brother that you are supposed to be, that God you in such a way that you are enough because Jesus is enough and he longs to use you and to work in your story and to take your desires and your heartbeats for communion and for connection and to say that in that I will partner alongside of you and we will create something that matters and we will participate in the oncoming beauty that is the kingdom of God. Are we willing to put ourselves in the way of that oncoming beauty? Are we willing to step in front of what is coming? Because Jesus is coming. 
And I think our desires and our passions will be honest with us to help us see and understand what it might be. So as the band comes up and plays this next song, we're going to come up, we're going to enter into the moment of communion as we do every Sunday. And you're invited to come and take a piece of the bread and the cup and to hold on to those elements and to go back to your seat and to continue to hold them. And I will come up and I will lead us in the reception of those as we take of one body and one cup as the body of Christ. But I invite you, as the band plays and as you prepare your heart and your mind in this moment, I invite you to ask that question of yourself. What is it that I want? No answer is too, I think, shallow or mundane in this moment. No answer needs to be dismissed. But ask it. What do you want? And hear the words of Jesus. Come and follow me and see. Come. Come see. Come. Come on. I'll show you. I'll walk with you. I'll sit with you in these moments and awaken something in you and allow you to see more than you could ask or imagine. And that's the invitation this morning at the table is to pursue what it is that the Lord would have for you and to awaken yourself again and to be able to dream again, to be able to risk again, to be able to be willing to fail again, to put yourself out there again and whatever it is that the Lord would be calling you to, which requires hope, requires the willingness to let go of things that you didn't even ever even know you maybe wanted or had. Molly Master said this, uh, sitting right there, she said it earlier a couple weeks ago. And she said that if you can, like, if you, if you long to dream for something, desire something, that, like, if it seems really easy, definable, in structure, you know, in, in a process, then that's not a dream, it's a plan. What is the Lord calling you to desire and to dream for deep in your heart, for you and for the world around you, for your family, for your friends? What do you want? It's the band plays. Come, hold on to the elements, and continue to be honest before yourself and before the Lord as you process that question and hold the answer to it. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God.